Welcome to Coffee with the College, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Healthcare Executives, Wisconsin chapter. Our goal is for listeners to find this podcast as relaxing as coffee with friends and just as comfortable as our guests and observers banter about questions that are on all of our minds. If you've listened to these podcasts before, you know the drill. I'm your host, Janet Schultz. I'm Chief Information Officer at a human services company called MyPath. Our observers today are Madeline Hansen, who is an operations manager in the Mayo Clinic Health System, Department of Family Medicine, and Rachel Kabelka, Manager, Strategic Initiatives for Advocate Health Midwest. Today, you're listening to the second of two podcasts we created with Ian Morrison. Ian is an internationally known author, consultant, and futurist who specializes in long-term forecasting and planning with particular emphasis on healthcare and the changing business environment. Ian has written, lectured, and consulted on a wide variety of forecasting, strategy, and healthcare topics for government, industry, and an array of nonprofit organizations in North America, Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. Welcome, Ian. Thanks for having me, Janet. It's great to be with you. Well, Ian, we should say it is great to be with you again because we've really appreciated the insights you shared in a Top 10 Trends in 2023 podcast. And in that earlier podcast, you noted workforce challenges as a Top 10 Trend. Today, we'd like to dive deeper into that topic and hear about what you're seeing, what are the drivers of the issue, and the biggest question of all, what can healthcare systems do about it? So can you uh, give us a flyover of that topic? And then um, Madeline and Rachel and I promise to have some great follow-up questions. Terrific. Yeah, well, I, I do think that it if you look at 30,000 foot, which is where my perspective tends to be at um, the the biggest single issue on the minds of CEOs and leaders in the health system uh, world right now is the workforce issue. And, uh, and that ripples through to the financial challenges they're all facing. And sure, supply chain costs are up and inflation's up generally, but the real issue is labor and specifically uh, being caught uh, you know, in with this rebound in clinical demand, uh, because many, many health systems are busy uh, with more patients than they've ever had and emergency rooms visits up and, uh, uh, you know, admissions at a high level and certainly outpatient activity at a high level. Uh, but the problem is their labor costs are such that they're still not making margin uh, sufficient to cover cost of capital and so forth. So that's the big strategic challenge they're all facing. And, you know, I, I've sort of joked that uh, 2022 was like 2020 without the CARES Act. Um, you know, that the actual, if you look at the finances, um, it was a similar story in terms of rising labor costs. But the inadequacy of of uh, reimbursement was not was not uh, supplemented by uh, you know additional government funds, and that's kind of where we are right now. We're we're flying without a safety net, if you like, uh, uh, to mix metaphors. Um, and you know, the, I need to tell this audience the 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 evidence of it is 
you know, you've got health systems who many of the workforce issues that they're spent, you know, people on the front lines in particular have been going at this now for three years. Um, and the, the, even though we are, they're not overwhelmed with COVID patients, they're overwhelmed with patients of all sorts with all kinds of diseases. And that's pretty common if you talk to academic medical centers and community hospitals across the country. Um, and the tracer condition of workforce shortages really are, uh, on the one hand, you're seeing doctors taking sabbaticals in the academic setting or retiring. You see, uh, you know, increased retirements amongst nurses, uh, particularly the older baby boom nurses who maybe hung in there at the start of the pandemic, but have reached the end of their tenure and tether, if you like. Um, and then the, the most prevalent one and the one that got a lot of attention, although it is ameliorating somewhat is the use of traveler nurses uh, in particular and the fact that at the at the height of the pandemic they were you know two three hundred dollars an hour uh you know uh, getting rates somewhere around there um it's still a big part I mean I'm on the board of a, a hospital a, a safety net hospital in Los Angeles um you know and our our line item for travelers is the entire net loss for the organization right and that's pretty typical. Uh, across the country, that that's been the the big difference, if you like, in terms of of labor costs. But labor costs have gone up generally, and it's not just nurses. It's you know we've seen wage inflation in the economy uh, at the low end. So your housekeepers and your uh, food services staff, you know, wage rates are rising for those appropriately, in my view, for those folks. But it, may, it it raises the bar and it raises the cost structure for all uh, health systems. Um, and then the other thing we're seeing in various parts of the country, especially in California, is local initiatives around minimum wages for healthcare workers. I mean, there's a minimum wage for healthcare workers of $25 that's been passed, $25 an hour, been passed in Los Angeles. Uh, and there are other uh, municipalities in California that are, uh, have similar ballot measures on the books. Now, it's not law yet, but it, it, it's directionally where uh, uh, people are headed. So those all conspire to raise the base of expense uh, that health systems are, are feeling. And the real thing we should get into is what can you do about it? As you said, Janet, I mean, what, what I've been trying to urge people just to give a, a quick overview and then we can maybe drill down on some of this is leaders need to sort out what things are permanent versus what things are temporary. Now, I'll give you an example of a temporary thing. The government provided a, a lot of liquidity to families through various unemployment insurance initiatives that were uh, specific to the pandemic and have since expired. So if you look at balance sheets of households, they their savings rate went way up uh, in uh, the early part of the pandemic with the infusion of such cash and when the stock market rebounded very rapidly in 2020. So rich households had asset inflation, poor households had injections of cash. Um, but you can't live forever on $10,000, right? So, I mean, so there's partly an inducement to return to work. And that's why we've seen in the marketplace 
actual labor force participation rates starting to climb back to where they were pre-pandemic. And that's true for all age ranges apart from over 65. So the, the, the gap uh, is largely amongst baby boomers who have not returned at the same rate back to their pre-pandemic levels, uh, the over 65 workforce, if you like. Um, the second thing I'd point to is that the, uh, the folks who are uh, in the labor force um, have requirements and desires for a different flexibility in their work. They have discovered hybrid work. They've discovered that they have childcare issues. I mean, I have two millennial kids, each of whom have a baby boy under two, right? Uh, dealing with childcare and the fact that the childcare uh, facilities is, are closed 50% of the time, either because the kids got a runny nose or somebody or the pipes were broke, you know, and the mothers of America deserve uh, you know, gold stars, it seems to me, for trying to navigate through the the last three years of of this pandemic with with issues such as childcare and families uh, have felt that. So my point is that we have to recognize that about a third of Americans are now working remotely. Uh, and the preference for about half of Americans is that they don't want to go back to work. Uh, full-time, five days a week. That's a big tension. So this issue of hybrid work is important. Um, and, you know, I think the punchline we ought to get to is, uh, so what? What do health systems do about it? And I think it's partly an attitude of engaging with their workforce to say, when would you like to work? And to be much more flexible in our approaches with shifts and and other workforce uh uh, redesign and work redesign. Um, and on the other, uh, to really focus on how can we help with tools and technologies that will actually save labor and help labor and help people's work life improve rather than be burdensome. You know, the electronic health record being a good example where it's, it's seen as a, by many clinical folk, both doctors and nurses and others, as a dissatisfier rather than a satisfier, as a productivity uh, drag rather than a productivity improvement. So we, we could talk about all of those, but I think that the, the bottom line is sort out what's permanent, what's temporary, try and figure out how you can best address that and go after it with a combination of technology and managerial improvement that can actually uh, make the work easier or or more productive and and make the lives of those folk delivering clinical care easier and more productive. Oh, Ian, I thought of a really good one that I wanted to ask you. In our last podcast, um, you talked about care delivery redesign, right? And something that you just mentioned um, uh, stuck with me. So when would you like to work? It was the question that you that you just posed. So how do you balance the workforce redesign with the care delivery redesign if each of these populations have different priorities? And have you seen any organizations successfully strike a balance between these two polarities? That that's a great question, Madeline. And 
the the short answer is that I think there's a lot of attention being paid uh, to the first one, which is the flexibility. Um, you know, people like uh, I mean, the first person I, I I've been close to Memorial Health System in Southern California over the years, and Barry Arbuckle, their CEO, had me there um, to help with with a retreat back in the summer of last year. Um, and he was telling me that they had just embarked on kind of a listening expedition within their organization. And they were doing some extremely large number of focus groups, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, I, I might get the number wrong, but it might be a hundred, right? Uh, to really listen to staff and say, what, what would work for you? That to me is a good example of an action step where where an institution is, is listening seriously, not sending it. And, and other folks are, are doing very similar things. Um, and what, they're, what they found, I think, was that flexibility uh, on shift length, on uh, days of the week and so forth were, were incredibly important to certain uh, folk. And, and it requires sort of segmentation and figuring out people's needs. So I think that's one, one area. The other stellar example that speaks to your second part of the question is, you know, how do you balance that with care redesign um, is uh, uh, the folks at Houston Methodist, Rebecca Schwartz and her colleagues there who are uh, focusing very much on uh, sort of virtual acute care um, and using technologies to automate certain administrative parts of uh, clinicians' duties and take, f- Rebecca told me that she took, basically, she gave nurses in ICUs four hours a day back by automating certain administrative interactions with the electronic health record. And they've invested a lot in, in what they call virtual acute care, where they've got remote uh, b- batteries of uh, clinicians who are assisting frontline ICU nurses in uh, delivery of care. So it's it's a very it's very much a a, a high tech redesign of care processes, but with the intent of fulfilling the goal that we talked about at the beginning is making the work life uh, uh, of of the frontline worker actually easier, not just sort of demanding more of the existing staff without changing the way you do what you do. Um, it's really about redesigning the work. And I think that's the sweet spot. It's way above my pay grade. I mean, I I started my career as a management engineer, uh, even though I wasn't qualified for it. And, um, you know, I, I I know you're at Mayo and and I've worked with Mayo a lot over the years. Um, I, I forget, I, I, how many people do Mayo are... Uh, how many management engineers do you have there? It's an enormous number relative to, to uh, uh, you know, most organizations, which I completely endorse because I really do think that this is going to be the big challenge going forward is redesigning from the ground up clinical care processes to be more digital in their mix, to be much more efficient, uh, but with the intent of making the life of the people delivering care better, not more burdened. And the electronic health record to date has to some extent been a burden rather than an improvement in their in their work life. So Ian, as I was listening to you 
I, I kept having this picture in my head of needing to really push ourselves to mix and match tactics in a way that we haven't in the past. So, you know, like um, Madeline, you said, how do you manage the tension of desire for flexibility with care redesign, right? And that, and where the rubber really meets the road is, what do you do when the hours that your patients want are not the hours that your caregivers want a caregiver, right? And uh, so how do you mix and match maybe virtual care that a nurse can do from home uh, in the hours that the patient wants to be seen, you know? So that whole management engineering, to your point, Ian, mixing and matching, we're going to have to push the envelope on that, I'm sensing. Right. And and just to build on that, Janet, because I think you're absolutely right. The mixing, the mixing and matching is a good metaphor. And uh, the, there are some systems um, uh, that I've talked to who have really invested a lot in kind of analytics around the workforce. Some of them have, have essentially created their own kind of internal staffing agency to do that mixing and matching more precisely. Um, you know, I'll give you a very personal example. I was in uh, for bypass surgery at Stanford a few months ago, um, you know, and and my nurses overnight, uh, probably both in the cardiac ICU and on the floor, uh, were travelers who were permanently there at Stanford. But their preference, uh, both males, uh, their preference was to work 12, you know, the, the evening, the, the night shift, basically the seven, seven at night to seven in the morning. I mean, that, that was their preferred model of work. And so for them, it was, as we say in Silicon Valley, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Uh, it, it's, it, it's what they wanted, but you've got to have the administrative systems to do the, the, the mixing and matching that you talk about, which is identify who those resources are and, and uh, and match them up, and I think, you know, again, tools uh, in that area can work. The other the other thing that's I think quite uh, interesting is I is this whole notion of hybrid work. I mean, a lot of us in healthcare say, well, it works if you're a millennial working for a startup and you're in the social media manager. You know, you can do that from home, but you can't do clinical work from home. You can't do healthcare work from home. But surprisingly large numbers of organizations, you know, I'll give you an example. Dartmouth, the CEO of Dartmouth told me that she had uh, 2,500 remote workers. Um, now, a lot of them are rev cycle. A lot of them are marketing or, or administrative tasks. But some of them were office assistants who were doing a lot of front-end appointment scheduling and and so forth who are working remotely. Um, we've heard of batteries of uh, RNs who are doing kind of remote telemedicine uh, support, uh, you know, uh, PAs doing that, physicians doing that, obviously, with the telehealth stuff. And so many systems are using uh, remote technologies and hybrid work to uh, offer the kind of components of a mixing and matching model, but that again, it's hard work. You know, it's 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 sort of it, it it's very different from here's the job we have, take it or leave it. Uh, to how do we customize to make it work for everybody? This is great. So many outstanding insights, and really, um, you've gotten our wheels turning, Ian. 
I'm curious, you know, you've identified those those start doings and potential tactics. Is there anything as organizations are focusing on workforce sustainment and recovery that you would suggest they stop doing? Any glaring stop doing from your perspective? Um, well, I, I, here's an example, and I, it's not that I would say stop, but they're going to have to respond to it. So uh, I, uh, my good friend, Bob Walker, who's the head of medicine at UCSF, who's a, a wonderful person and has been an absolute leader through the pandemic and uh, both his podcasting and broadcasting of, of UCSF Grand Rounds uh, to guide us through the pandemic. But Bob shared with his followers as, as acolytes um, a couple of, probably a year ago now, um, just a data point from UCSF, which was the number of messages on my chart to physicians, right, had increased fivefold over the last five years, right? And this is a huge, he pointed out in a tweet uh, a year or so ago that this was in his sort of anecdotal interaction with medical staff and faculty was kind of like the number one, you know, source of dissatisfaction and overwhelmed, uh, overwhelming them in terms of their inbox. Well, it turns out, and, and there was just a UCSF Grand Rounds about a month ago on this topic, that uh, if you use ChatGPT as a platform for uh, editing and customizing uh, or at least drafting responses to those messages. There can be a tremendous improvement in productivity if it was done in conjunction with clinical oversight and the right workflow. That To me, that's a good example of actually solving a problem, uh, you know, using uh, technology. Um, you know, another kind of mon mundane example of, of that is, you, you know, a number of health systems are using the kind of because we've seen, as I said earlier, upward pressure on price, uh, on wage rates uh, for thing for you know occupations like food services and and uh, environmental house you know housekeeping, environmental services workers within hospitals as wage rates in other industries go up, and you know a lot of health systems pointed out to me at this recent meeting they were using the um, Amazon automated checkout technology in their cafeteria areas uh, because that was the you know one of the areas where they were having difficulty hiring staff so um you know again there may be some technological solutions but again it comes back to what Janet said earlier you've got to go in with an attitude of trying to solve the problem and make life better for both workers and and for uh you know the organization uh, uh, and the productivity of the organization. On behalf of Coffee with the College, we'd like to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our premier sponsors, Epstein UN Architects, HGA, Hush Blackwell, and thank you as well to our preferred sponsors, C.G. Schmidt, Findorf, Paul Render, Nutanix, Plunkett Research Architects, and Quarles and Brady. So Ian, we've talked quite a bit about um, work redesign, um, what about recruiting redesign? Is there something health systems should be doing different in terms of where we're sourcing uh, the caregivers of the future? Yeah, I think th that is actually a very important uh, question, Janet. The, at this recent meeting I mentioned, I, there were 
about 150 CEOs. And there were obviously workforce came up over and over again in, in the panels and so forth at this meeting. Um, and I was very impressed by the range of initiatives that I heard. Uh, for example, uh, a number of institutions uh, have set up relationships with college universities um, to secure, and even high schools uh, going all the way to younger students to secure a, a reliable flow of often nurses, but all kinds of health professionals, respiratory therapists. In one case, um, you know, there's been a number of new medical schools started locally uh, in support, particularly this was, I'm thinking particularly of my friends in Montana, uh, you know, to start a, a medical school to try and uh, bolster the capacity in, in primary care going forward. Um, so that kind of upstreaming, if you like, to uh, you know, educational sources it w- is, is impressive. The other form of upstreaming that that came out, a uh, number of different organizations exploring uh, bringing uh, uh, nurses in particular from the UK, from Philippines, from Canada. Uh, now, you could argue that they have their own shortages going on um, and whether that's, you know, in the name of global equity, a good thing, but it's certainly a solution set that many of them are exploring. And it's not without its controversy. In the case of Canadians and, and the UK, it, it can be complex from a from a immigration point of view. Uh, there has been a historic flow of F- Filipino nurses uh, around the world, quite frankly. I mean, it's one of Philippines' great exports and the nurses are uh, very highly trained and so forth. Um, the other thing we've seen on on this kind of upstreaming is taking the matter into their own hands rather than being health system being a victim of the staffing agencies actually starting their own regional staffing pools uh you know building the same kind of infrastructure that a staffing company has for recruitment and using tools and technologies to deploy those staff uh I'm thinking of the infirmary health system in Alabama who essentially created a a regional staffing pool for their entire workforce so that they could deploy their own people uh, as as if they were kind of uh, temp or per diem uh, workers. And and also offering flexible arrangements where you could choose to be on a per diem basis without benefits if that was your preference. And it goes back to this issue of, of flexibility. So... Um, and then, you know, on the retention side and the upstreaming, things like tuition reimbursement and and uh, shift differentials. But I, I would say it goes back to the overarching comment you made earlier about mix and matches. I would say you want to meet people in their lives, right? Just as we need to do that for our patients, we need to do that for our workforce. Uh, and that that's kind of the, the ethos, I think, that a lot of systems who have found uh, their way through this um, are, are, you know, rolling up their sleeves and problem solving, quite frankly. Ian, in our last podcast, you shared a metaphor that has really stuck with me. Um, you had said that as we think about the impact of COVID, it is not much different than maybe what we may see for people in military combat, that we can't continue to send our employees in over and over without expecting them to come out with some level of trauma. 
That being said, I'm curious, what are you seeing health systems do in order to address workplace wellness and even in some cases, workforce violence? Yeah, that, I think it's a, a hugely important issue. Um, let, let me deal with the sort of well, the workplace wellness. And I do think the military metaphor does pertain here, particularly, uh, but not exclusively for frontline staff. I, I think uh, certainly, you know, in, in terms of surveying uh, sort of the traumatic effects of COVID across all health systems, it, it's true of the C-suite as well who have gone through their own form of trauma over the last three years. Um, but I do think it is an appropriate metaphor. What, what I'm seeing as kind of best practice um, is uh, a number of organizations. For example, Hackensack uh, is a good example where they have developed um, well-being care teams beyond the classic employee assistant program You know, for behavioral health and other kinds of help for workers to be much more proactive. Um, and I deal with the stigma because I think there is a lot of stigma uh, a, attached to particularly the mental health pressures and trauma uh, of, of caregivers. And, you know, particularly those who are in either frontline or critical care uh, ER environments where they're kind of noted for their resilience. Um, that it, That's very similar to what you hear from our colleagues in the military about uh, combat veterans. So I think there are ways to do it. A lot of it has to do with providing support services in terms of resilience, coaching, and, and support tools. Um, and, uh, you know, many, many health systems, I think, are investing in that, whether it be, um, you know, one example was developing a mobile van for health staff, you know, where there were where it was a sort of stigma-free environment where you could contact caregivers and, and, and so forth. Um, on the workplace violence thing, I mean, I think this is something the American public don't fully appreciate, the degree to which, uh, and it's, part, it's partly the stress that family members were, were under uh, during COVID, the, the lack of visitor uh, uh, policies in, in many uh, health systems where folk couldn't visit family and frustrations were high, but it's it's not. We should not tolerate uh, putting people who are trying to help folk. You know, healthcare workers should not be in the front line of abuse. Let me put it that way. Uh, it's just not right. And I think what many leaders have done have taken this issue very seriously. You know, they're all the way from signage. You know, I I go once uh, to three times a week for cardiac rehab. And there's a big sign in the front door uh, going into Sequoia Hospital, which basically says uh, there's a conduct we expect of patients, which is not to verbally or physically abuse staff, right? Well, I'll get the wording wrong. Um, you know, UCLA, for example, is doing using AI tools to screen patients for violence profiling, uh, you, you know, based on uh, some of the research they've done. I mean, Freighter in, in Wisconsin, where you, you all are, uh, have a system of code orange to identify events where there has been an act of violence against uh, uh, workers. And 
you, you know, there, there are broader societal violence initiatives going on where many health systems led by Northwell uh, have come together to decry uh, gun violence. And sadly, in the last 24 hours, we had another uh, mass school shooting. Um, you know, I, I find it tragic that that the leading cause of death amongst children uh, has in the last two years become gun violence, not motor vehicle accidents. And as a sort of sad indictment. And, and I think one of the key things that we've got to address as a country. But um, this issue of workplace violence really speaks, I think, to uh, making it safe for the people who deliver care. And I know that health system leaders are taking this very, very seriously. And we've talked about so many important topics surrounding workforce already in the last 30 minutes. Um, I may be ending our podcast today on the million dollar question, but there is a topic we haven't yet touched on that I believe is a big one. All of these pressures on workforce now add the backdrop to try and make strides on health equity and the extra time and attention you need to put on that to strategize, and more importantly, the doing part of it um, just adds another layer of complexity to all of these workforce issues. Even taking it a step further, weaving in culture and mission and maintaining our values through these volatile changes, what would you have to say about health equity and the future? Yeah, that that's so important because... Uh, as you say uh, rightly, um, you know we've got all the challenges we've described, and then you layer on top of that uh, the requirement and, and imperative and the moral imperative to really consider health equity, not only in terms of uh, patients' uh, services, but also in terms of staff and uh, the diversity and inclusion that that we ought to have in our in our health systems. Um, and I think. You know, the way to think about this is that everybody deserves to be treated appropriately um, and that the, the the leaders that I talk to um, are sort of trying to, a bit like what, what President Biden is trying to do in his health policy, is sort of equity and all. Um, the, the way to do this is to think about how do you have much better communication um, that is to everybody. And, and there are actually some really positive things I think have come out of the pandemic in terms of the ability to reach and include everybody uh, in the organization in terms of uh, using video forms of, of communication from the leadership suite, uh, more regular contact. So that, that whole notion of inclusion uh, in in you know everyone's in the loop if you like, um, and I also think that uh, the physical act of rounding by leaders is is important to to bring everybody on board. But it it really comes back to that the whole issue of health equity, I think, is about first of all identifying and confronting the brutal facts of inequity you know and and to have data to support that and then using the analytics to say how could we redress and of course it it must involve making the caregiving system more responsive and look more like the people receiving care on the one hand and so that is both a uh, recruitment and retention 
uh, and a cultural orientation towards service and to meet people in their lives. Um, and and I, I think many, many health systems are taking this very seriously uh, and elevating the issue of health equity uh, uh, within the C-suite. So that that's encouraging to me. Um, and look, the great leaders uh, that I've worked with, uh, and I'm thinking about a fireside chat I did recently with my friend Carlos Migoya, who runs uh, Jackson Memorial in uh, Miami. You know, he he was a banker who got called to uh, public service after a 40 year career in banking to first work temporarily as city manager in Miami and then take over the Jackson system, which was struggling mightily financially. And he. He told me that that when he went there, Jackson was a place people ended up at because they had no other choice. Uh, and he's now built it to the point where uh, it's a choice for people and they want to go there because of the quality of care and the service delivered, regardless of your, your income or your race or your uh, social standing. And that to me is testimony to what leaders can do in, in terms of resolving the issues you've talked about, that if you really step up and you treat people fairly and you do the right thing, uh, you will actually advance the issues uh, of health equity and and eliminate disparities because you've committed the organization to delivering the same care that more affluent and and better connected people uh, can can secure for themselves. And, and that's really fundamentally what it's going to be about is leaders stepping up to say we can do this, we can actually improve the lives uh, not only of our caregivers but the lives of our patients by by uh, uh, addressing these disparities and and doing something about it. and And that's why I see leaders doing. That's why uh, I keep coming to uh, help them in their work because I think it's uh, it's directionally where we ought to be going. And I think leaders are embracing that. And we've talked in earlier podcasts about resiliency. In, in healthcare and leadership and also the human connection. So I think what you're describing there is ensuring that, you know, we're maintaining that human connection is really what's going to be um, moving us positively into the future. So it gives that glimmer of hope and another silver lining to what has come out of the pandemic. Thank you. Well, Ian, on behalf of Rachel and Madeline and I, I'd really, again, like to thank you so much for carving time out for us to talk about the important issues we discussed in our first podcast and in this podcast on workforce. Um, just wanted to summarize with a couple of observations um, from this wide-ranging discussion. Uh, one is that early in our time together, you noted that um, for a number of reasons, in many demographics, the workforce is starting to come back. And so what is the rest of the story of that? The rest of the story is we as healthcare leaders need to make them glad they made that choice to come back uh, should they choose to work within our organizations. And so we need to be listening leaders. Uh, we need to have an attitude of engaging workforce related to flexibility and work redesign and really uh, walk the talk of saying the people that do the work know the work and connect their knowledge to the needs of our patients. And we should be able to find some clues to a path forward. 
that sounds right to me. And and uh, uh, I think there's a sort of final point I would make about you. You get strategic advice from unlikely sources. Um, and on the back of Hellman's mayonnaise, it says, "Keep cool, don't freeze." Um, and I think that's actually profound in this regard. We've got to be purposeful about it and not be panicked uh, to say, oh, we can't do anything about it. You can do something about it. And it's very much what you said, Janet, of uh, listening and responding to what you hear uh, to to do the right thing in the name of uh, the mission that you have for the organization. Well, thank you again, Ian, and thank you listeners for joining us for another podcast. We look forward to continuing the conversation in future podcasts this year on some of the topics we raised today. We have some other diversity, equity, and inclusion and health equity uh, podcasts on the slate for the remainder of the year, and we hope you'll join us for those as well. This podcast is copyrighted material of the American College of Healthcare Executives, Wisconsin Chapter 2023.